0: Welcome to a special episode of the Research VR podcast. Why? Why do you ask? Because for the first time ever, all of the hosts of Research VR are actually joined into the same space and not doing this over Skype. This is for real, guys. What's up, Chris? What's up, Peter? Hell yeah! Yeah. yeah the, there's no lag between our voices. There's no awkwardness that we can't see each other. All the social cues are coming through. Now we can is talk to so so each so other. That's so much.
1: Sorry, I have to go to <laughs> the <laughs> room and call you, yeah. Sky. Yeah. <laughs> and
0: as our special guest to be joining us on our on this momentous occasion is Mr. Alex Bowles from Ortelian. Hello. How you doing, Alex? Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, That's do you feel honored to be in the f- presence of the first time the reunion? <laughs> I, I'm not even reunion. This is the the, the reunion. union. It's the union. Yeah, I do. <laughs> this is this is really cool. I've never even met these guys in real life, and and suddenly they showed up at my doorstep They say, "Hey, they seem <laughs> <laughs> oh, they seem like good guys." I guess so. They just showed up with a microphone and a VR headset, and they're like, "Let's do this." I'm like, oh, <laughs> two of
1: my favorite things. What is it?
0: <laughs> We are
1: right now at the Upload San
0: Francisco Collective, right? We are. We're sitting sitting in one of the Oculus, uh, one of the VR rooms, actually, uh, because they have foam pads, uh, foam and sound insulation foam all around the walls themselves. Actually, not for sound itself, but for more for people bumping okay. into the walls yeah. and breaking things. Uh, pretty genius, I'd say. But, uh, but it also
1: works for sound, right? It is also works for great. sound, and uh, we might start using this
0: room as a podcasting room. Just, Cause it sounds pretty, pretty nice. All right, yes. so me. yeah, let's, let's go, go to
1: our f- guests. All right, well,
0: well hello, and again, thank you for having me, Alex. Hello. What are we doing here? Why are we sitting in this room and talking together? What is um, interesting about you and uh,
2: about your project? What, you, tell us a little bit about what Ortelion is. The focus of uh, the program that we're developing is called We Are Here, and it's um is aimed at people who are starting high school, uh, probably without a huge interest in math and science, and it's designed to give them an insight into what these subjects are really all about that they're probably not gonna get from a traditional academic curriculum. Uh, The idea is that if you can trigger a certain level of insight and curiosity, uh, you're gonna shift from the kind of extrinsic motivation, which is what gets people through these studies now, to a much more intrinsic motivation, where they're driving themselves, finding out new questions, starting to see these subjects as really creative fields of endeavor as opposed to collections of just receive wisdom, facts to memorize, and tests to pass. Um, I think where this maybe dovetails with what, what you guys talk about is that when you get into this level of engagement with students, uh, specifically with VR and with the program that we've developed, you really start looking at the, the way their, their minds are structured. I mean it, it comes down to the basic structure of our cognition. Um, the Vehicle that we're using is the history of math making. Um, this turns out to be a, a subject that's a bit like a prism, in that you can sort of break it apart and see a huge number of other subjects all sort of coexisting within it. Like, so what exists within the history of math making? What, oh, what, what drew you to the subject that you're seeing such oh, but, a prism of things? Yeah. Well, this is this is okay. This is a longer. <laughs> this is a longer answer. But um, <laughs> well, maybe, maybe start at the beginning. I mean, I was studying the history of mathematics and science when I was in college, and I had discovered in the course of taking a more historical approach to these subjects, and one that was very interdisciplinary, that there was a huge amount of beauty in them that I just did not get when I was in high school. And I wasn't alone in recognizing this. And my thought was, why didn't anybody tell me about them? You know, maybe I've been badly served by the school system to date, or the school system that experience. And one is service, right? In terms of what? math and sciences are a lot of the time before just students. highly highly compartmentalized treatments didn't really see the connections between them um, certainly didn't see the connections between you know philosophy and art and some of the other subjects that I could see dovetailing when I was at a university level and you know really felt that this was something that I wished I'd had earlier in life and it was great that I was getting it then but I really wish I'd had it earlier and towards the end of my studies, I ended up working on an exhibition, a cartographic exhibition. One of the um, one of my teachers was actually one of the world's leading scholars in Chinese mapmaking. His name is uh, Dr. Cordell Yi, and he was working on an exhibit with the Library of Congress that was expo- uh, exploring, competing, well, not competing really, but contrasting uh, cartographic traditions from Asian and Western mapmaking. Mm. And you know, I spent a summer basically in the Library of Congress looking through. You know, old maps from the 15th, 16th century, and really seeing the genesis of modern mapmaking. What I was also seeing was that all of these subjects I've been studying, the history of mathematics and science, were encapsulated here, and that you could literally see them. And not only could you see them on the paper, but you could see the response of people using this paper, using this clearer vision of the world, to actually expand the various social and economic networks that were in turn being charted in these maps. So you realize, looking at these bits of paper, that they were both causes and effects of history. <laughs> and there you are, holding it in your hands,
1: and that was just, that was a powerful experience. You know, mm-hmm. sort of fell in love there. Now, when you introduced this idea to me a few days ago, you were speaking about how the way humans think developed was how the maps developed, right? Right. Well, that came much later, and I had no idea at the
2: time how deep mapping actually went in terms of being an extension of our physiology. Mm-hmm. Do tell, but um, <laughs> well, this 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 took this took a lot more time before I even got into this. But um, you know, years later, I was looking for a way to turn this into an educational part. I ended up going to work in commercial filmmaking. Um, had gotten that had run its course. I was I'd lost interest in this essentially. And uh, a friend of mine who worked with the American Museum of Natural History as our director of visualization was saying, "Well." You should do one of these shows, a planetarium show. Like, well, what on earth? Who would I do? He's like, well, look, you understand the astronomical roots of mapping. Yes. You understand how that gets filtered through mathematical and scientific models to create maps and yes. He's like, and you could show that. Like, well, yeah, sure. He's like, that's a story. You know, that's what we need. We have people coming here, uh, teachers. Bringing their classes here, needing to get them involved in math in, or in science in particular, and we're able to deal with that. But when they ask for stuff that's going to get students excited about math, we're coming up short. Mm-hmm. And this is an idea using essentially mapping as a connection to astronomy, which is our bread and butter and the needs of classrooms, you know, throughout the New York area. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how you know. That's how you can find a show that's going to work in this environment and you know meet the needs of teachers. And that's kind of where it started. And it also didn't get that far because the economics of the world aren't that great. When virtual reality came along, mm-hmm. um, suddenly it looked like there was a much, much bigger venue for spherical media. And initially this started as simply a, a straight translation from you know, a giant dome with a bunch of people to a small private dome with you know, individual people. No real change in the content itself. But mm-hmm. the further I got into VR, the further, the more I started to realize that domes themselves were just the backdrop. That The essence of VR was really a much more social and interactive experience, and it wasn't simply about how we perceived the world, it was about how we interacted with the world. And this is when I started to realize that it's got a lot more to do with our underlying consciousness and how our brains assemble a picture of the world and coordinate our actions within it than I was originally, you know, sort of imagining. And
1: you know, this is when
2: the sort of connections between how our minds assemble a stable image of the world and then locate ourselves within it and allow us to essentially act, you know, within that image. And the larger problems of mapping started to become clear. I mean, one seemed to parallel the other, you know, whether it was from a micro and a macro. And as I started to reading more about, and I'm sure you guys know far more about this than I do, but you know, basically the two stream theory, you know, the ventral pathway, the dorsal pathway, Absolutely. you know, creating the what and the where, you know, just sort of lighting up like, oh my God, this is exactly what mapping does. You know, but it does it on a global scale. And, and you know, the idea of needing to sort of combine the product of these two streams in the um, in the prefrontal cortex and turning, you know, impulses into motor control. Uh, that looked to me a lot like what's happening when a navigator is combining charts with their own position and turning that into, say, the direction of the ship.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, and turning that into
2: a specific set of commands, like you know, five degrees this way uh-huh. and pull such and such sail and by this much. And you know, I was seeing essentially a, a large externalization of what must be going on in a smaller but much more complex way inside our minds. And this, this was just one of the most exciting things that I like. I, I thought I'd come across because. When you look at the history of mapping, what you see is a constant progression towards deeper integration with maps. So we create these sort of giant externalizations of the world. And we learn to use them to operate the world in ways that we couldn't otherwise do. When the entire field moves forward, the way people respond to that is by essentially trying to get the input and output circles to move much faster. So we can get information into maps, much more quickly, producing much, much higher resolution maps that cover a broad range of subjects. But we can also get information out of them. And we can act on them, you know, faster and more reliably in a greater variety of circumstances. And so when you start looking at this over the course of say a couple thousand years, you see these, these vectors converging and you realize, well, there's going to be a point where we essentially are able to take this enormous body of data that's going into maps and turn it into something that feels like our direct experience. And the common denominator in both cases is space. That you're creating essentially symbolic space in maps where say one inch equals one mile or you know, whatever it is. And you're able to bring that into a virtual environment where the synthetic space in the map is felt and experienced. I'm sorry, the symbolic space in the map is felt and experienced as though it is real space. You know, and this is what virtual reality does. You know, it creates enough triggers uh, sensory triggers so that our mind believes that, you know, what is essentially a flat panel in front of our eyes is in fact a a volume with depth, mm-hmm. and we begin to interact with it as though it had that depth. And it's like, well, if you could take all the symbolic information that's in maps and you can bring it into this space where we experience it as though it is a real thing, um, you're doing something a bit like what a telescope does you know, we can't travel to a distant galaxy, but we can bring that distant galaxy to us, put it on our scale. Likewise, we can take representations of the world and the systems within it that typically exist far beyond our ability to comprehend. And through virtual reality, we can bring them to a point where we can start interacting with them naturally, instinctively, and you know, essentially on a, on a human level. And so at this point, I realized that virtual reality was not only a means to tell this story, and to essentially distribute it in an economical fashion, it was also a very, very major chapter in the story. And to me, that was one of these aha moments where you realize that as a as a writer, you know, something where you're mm-hmm. looking for a payoff for an mm-hmm. audience. You know, for them to hit that revelation moment in the end where they realize that this thing that they've been seeing the story through is actually a part of the story. You know, that's mm-hmm. that that gets people a light up. And if mm-hmm. what you've given people is the so the underlying understanding of how it works, both on a sort of a scientific-technical level, but also on a perceptual level, you know, they realize that they're equipped to start building on this. Mm-hmm. You know, that they're not just going to walk away from this, you know, unchanged. That they now know something about this and that they can actually start building and developing it. Well, I mean, what do you see that building developing,
0: turning into? I mean, what, what kind of inspirations are you trying to provoke?
2: Here? Well, it's, I think that's, in many ways, that's, Um, I should say straight off about nothing in particular Mm -hmm. Um, the idea here is that people are going to see something within themselves that they respond to and that they're going to find a way to take what they find interesting and expand it Um, I will say that all this is happening against the backdrop of uh, planetary change, climate change that is having profound effects and will continue to have even deeper effects on pretty much every aspect of human life political, social, economic uh-huh. And so on. Different people are going to respond to different aspects of that differently. I mean, some people, for example, are going to get very interested in the politics of this. Some people are going to get interested in the economics. Some people are going to get interested in the scientific aspects of it. I mean, it's going to vary depending on the individual. But what I'm hoping people can see in, not necessarily mapped as they exist now, but in these sort of um, 3D, live, immersive, mapped environments. They're going to be able to create in the coming years is a way to take whatever they're interested in and connect with other people. So if you've got, um, you know, let's say a level of scientific insight that you're bringing to what you're doing, you're able to render possible effects from various policy outcomes in a way that has simply never been done before, with a level of clarity, precision, confidence we just as people never had before. And you can share that environment with somebody who's actually dealing with the policy and who is able to essentially make the deal with all of the different groups, bring them together to find common ground and a way to act on that. You've got something very, very powerful. And for the first time, I think you've got a framework in which people from all these different backgrounds, and all these different interests, can essentially work together. So you know, in, in a general sense, what I'm hoping that people get out of this is twofold. One is a way to see whatever interest they have, or rather see a tool for whatever interest they have to be acted on on scales with effectiveness that was previously unimaginable. But also to see that they can do that in cooperation and coordination with others who are, who are at basic experience of the same thing. So it's, it's yeah. kind of a lingua franca for
1: 21st century. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> the audience might wonder why you can tell your story so nicely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... If I were to listen to you and it would be the first time, like it was a few days ago, would be like you know, my mind would be blown away. Uh, you have also a very great trailer, a video that we will link, saying okay. it's public, right? Yeah. Yeah, And you will see that um, a lot what Alex so far has taught is, I think, quite strongly influenced by his background in making advertisements, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I hate to say it, but yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, not it's, it's, it's not bad,
2: it's good. No, it's, well, yeah, and um, the thing about ads is that nobody wants them, nobody likes them. You know, nobody has to see it. So if you, you know, if you're, if you've got a client um, and you're trying to make a good spot for them, you're, you've got a pretty high bar to clear. You know, you've got a, I mean, the production values have to be very high. Um, Your point has to be very clear and it has to be very memorable. And these are not things that, uh, how do I put it, scientific and mathematical education really focused on. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) You know, clarity, accessibility, engagement. Um, I could make a point I go to school and there is suddenly someone trying to teach me I don't want it. I don't want to see ads I don't want to see the mass book I want to play around with my phone so it's a similar problem on both sides yeah no, I
2: mean advertising as a business is faced with some you know pretty tricky problems when it comes to engaging, and maintaining human interest um, you know I just saw this as a chance to use your password good <laughs> Um yeah and <laughs> sure. I think there's something to
0: be said about you know people call it clickbait but I don't think that's I mean, there's some things that are clickbait. Let's just say, um, but there are then there's engaging headlines or headlines that actually encapsulate you know, the entire idea of the article itself or the video itself into just the you know, four or five words that capture your attention, make you click on it, and then actually, you know, see if you consume it or not. Um, there, it's not not everything good is clickbait, and not you know, and, and that just goes to show that you know you have some kind of expertise in understanding theory of mind, which is understanding someone else's perspective, when their you know their first exposure to your content will have to be through this very short thirty-second video. Um, I have such great thoughts about this product itself. You know, I've spent years thinking about it. That new consumer doesn't know what that is. Um, to actually just break it down to the basic mechanics of what they need to know and then actually putting that into a 30 second short. So it, it takes a lot of mental effort and that cognitive mm-hmm. effort to imagine what it feels like to, to not know any of this mm-hmm. and how you're exposed
1: to that. Now the thing is also when we come back maybe to the teaching point, I mean, you're sitting in school, right? There's a teacher in front of you He's trying to tell you something and he's basically, basically computing with your headphones that are playing music, some kind of ads that are shown on your iPhone, right? Or your Android phone. And all the stuff that's happening around you, everything is so colorful, so thrilling. You know, you click on the TV, there's a lot of amazing stuff happening. You go to the internet, a lot of short, precise information describing very strongly and very quickly what it's supposed to be, you know. But then you come to school and it's a very long 90-minute lesson on how this formula was developed, right? And as far as I understand, you're trying to break it up, right?
3: So maybe here we can do a one-step closer to the ground, and you, maybe you can give us an example of the experience that you would imagine here.
2: Uh-huh. Um, well, actually, to answer both of the questions, the first one is not necessarily trying to break it, because that's that's a little ambitious right now. Um, Be disruptive. Uh, it's, I, I think it was a more of a complimentary thing uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at, sure, this, sure. At, at this point. It's okay. Um, yeah, you start somewhere. You start somewhere, and the idea is that you've, you sort of accept the existing framework for what it is, you recognize that there is in fact a lot of information that's buried in there, um, and you're not necessarily going to see it if you're not the right frame of mind. So the idea here is to simply give people the idea that this stuff is there; it is in fact worth digging for. Um, yeah, they're going to so they're going to have to dig, um, but for people you know like myself who whose complaint really came down to why didn't anybody even tell me that this was there? You know, if I had simply known, I would have approached these classes differently. So I think initially that's the problem it solves. And, you know, I think this is actually not something where you're sort of, I mean, I don't, I don't blame teachers for any of this. I mean, they're operating in a, a framework that was established, you know, by and large a century ago, if not more. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was something that they could have changed, could change, they would have changed by now. Um, I, think, I think many teachers understand this problem, in fact, more acutely than most people. Um, So, you know, my hope is that this is something that they're going to essentially be able to recognize the the value in immediately and, you know, tell their students, this is something you should be doing. This is sort of an essential portion of the prep. Um, You know, in terms of, like, what does this actually look like, uh, one of the places, you know, essentially where this is a a demo that I'm producing now to show this actually works, um, starts in the Library of Alexandria, you know, where... Mm -hmm. A lot of the basic language that we think about in terms of mapping latitude, longitude—you know, having sixty or three hundred sixty degrees of—you know—well, um, I mean, that's how we divide divide the whole thing up. I mean, this is this is all stuff that emerged at a fairly specific place in time, and you know, the idea here is to show people how mathematics, scientific models, computation all work together—you know, as a whole. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, also like three legs on a stool. So, you know, the example starts with a, um, with the Euclidean construction, just building a triangle. And what people are able to do is, you know, they, they, they build a triangle. There's a, there's a guide, a guide that they, this. They construct a triangle. And the guide asks them to consider what they know about this, you know, and how they know about this, and, you know, how they know that the triangle they construct is perfectly equilateral. And what you're ultimately referring to is people's basic sense of space and proportion, that you can take this diagram, you can expand it in time and show that it's a series of interlocking spirals and that the different elements of it are, in fact, the same line at different points in time. You know, it's almost like the watch, the the second hand on your watch. You know, if it's in one point or at another point, you don't think of it as being a different hand. It's the same hand, it's just moved through time. And we have a very instinctive, we, we we can essentially recognize the sort of persistence of that hand as itself through time Mm -hmm. on a very natural level. So when you can start to see these different elements of a geometric figure as really the same line at different moments of time, you basically can recognize, you you get to the point where the the self-evidence of the proposition becomes recognized. You see what self-evidence is and you're like, oh, I know this. The guide can then take you a little further down the line and ask you to Observe what sort of measures there are. You realize there are no measures here at all. You know, this is a mm. this is a generic triangle. One of the beautiful things about VR is that you can change scale radically. Mm-hmm. So you can take the viewer, you can take this glowing triangle floating in front of them, and you can turn the entire scene into something that's on the tip of a leaf, You know the giant ladybug above you. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's just visibly huge. And then you change it again to your point where it's sort of human scale. Maybe change it again until you're floating over a city and maybe you're changing again when the planet's orbiting through it. The consistency of the scale between yourself and the triangle it uh-huh. never changes. And what you recognize here, again on this almost visceral level, is that what is true at one scale must be true at every scale. And this is a way to introduce people to the concept of a universal proof. It's not what they get in high school where they're asked to prove something and then it's done. You know, when you uh, a truly universal proof will be true at all possible scales, in all possible instances, for everybody, anywhere, at any time. Uh-huh. You know, this century, next century, etc. And so, what you can then, what you essentially set people up to recognize is that mathematics is this tool for communicating ideas with absolutely perfect resolution between people, no matter how far apart they are. You know, century centuries dividing them. That's a superpower. Uh-huh. You know, and it's generally not something that most people think about or get taught in high school. Okay,
3: just quick question, for which platform are you right now developing? Is it for five? Starting with five. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, then a uh, follow-up question. How important do you think hands are? Very. Can you can you do it with just your VR or
2: some simpler interaction? I think technically you could, but I also think that would defeat the purpose. Mm-hmm. Because one of the most important things when you're dealing with abstract mm-hmm. subjects is the engagement of a sense-motor understanding. Um, that, and this is one of the problems we run into at the high school level. We, we have this happens all the time in the grade school level. You know, mm-hmm. People play with toys and play with blocks when they're starting to learn, you know, the basics of geometry. And as they learn more and more, they stop relying on physical manipulation so much. Yeah, it runs right. abstract in right. their mind, right? Exactly. However, the underlying mm-hmm. motor neurons
1: that develop and during same. physical play are still active. And this yes, is what's so fascinating? Yes. And uh, when we have been discussing it two days ago like you explained to me what you're precisely doing, it triggered, you know, a bell in my mind. There are those sensory motor contingencies. It's the theory that frames um, in a certain way how we learn to interact and interpret the world, right? Mm, Let me explain it that way. When you're born, your eyes and your ears and your nose are all kind of nerves that go into your brain, but your brain doesn't know what they are. You know, there is some kind of information coming in and going out, but how should I interpret it? You know, there is no sense behind it. And then you start to use your hands to cover your eyes, and suddenly you don't see anymore. You start to cover your, with your hands your ears, you don't hear anymore. So the brain learns a coupling between the sensory motor actions and what you perceive, right? So it goes on and on and on, and it's not just your hands covering the ears, but you're touching something. That's why kids love to touch everything. They need to feel scale. They only at the age of two understand that a car on a picture is too small to sit inside, it, right? At a certain age, you don't even get the difference between a small toy car and a big car. They try to sit down in a toy car because they don't get the scale. But at some point, it develops. So the point here is
3: that you don't have pictures or objects saved in your head or even patterns, but you actually recognize world through the action. Exactly. Which here is extremely important because if you can in any way act with uh, your content
2: then you will learn it much better because you, you did some stuff. Yes, exactly. exactly. And this is a huge problem in high school because what we've tended to do, or what educators tend to do, is they've associated this sort of very tactile style of learning with a stage in people's lives, mm-hmm. not a stage in their development of an understanding of a particular subject. Yes. And as it turns out, um, this sort of literal hands-on approach is a really great way to learn anything with an abstract layer, no matter how old you are. And, you know, when people talk about being incredibly bored in high school, you know, unengaged, it's it's interesting, like, the words themselves sort of give you clues to what's going They're not engaged, they're mm-hmm. not, like,
1: there's no, you can always think of like gears, they're not actually yeah. physically picking stuff up and moving it around. I mean, the stuff from chemistry I remember is when we blow up stuff, you know, right. where we actually interact with the chemicals. Mm-hmm.
2: But it's, it's that interaction that's key. And, Again, when you're dealing with abstract subjects, you move away from that at one point. In fact, you get you get to a point where having to physically manipulate something becomes mm. kind of a burden. You look for ways. You know, you look for shortcuts. Yes. But it's really important that the that the student is the one looking for the shortcut. You know, that they've that they're doing that once they've gotten
1: the physical basis
2: down.
3: Okay.
1: But the thing is, um what we have been discussing also with you previously is UX of virtual reality, right? So what you have so far described is a very awesome future where we use VR and actually educate our children, right? Now, there is still a long way to go there because we don't have no unifying um, ways to interact with VR, right? So right now every one of us sitting around the world being totally in favor of VR kind of tries out its own UI, maybe stealing here some idea, maybe copying one idea here, maybe grateful taking from a tutorial, right? But there is no framework of UX, right, in VR?
3: No, there are just bunch of great ideas or less great ideas, so I can list demos that are showing you how not to combine things or how not to do things and there are demos that are showing great navigation Hmm. um, tools that are, that it looks like they are becoming standards Hmm. already. Teleportation obviously has has
0: its thing, but the issue with with teleportation is that you don't develop a mental model or a cognitive map of where you are. Uh, the second, I think, the, the alternative to that is combining that with scaling, with using you know the, the the side grip buttons on a Vive, or it will probably be the one of the triggers on the Touch, where you grab and you kind of pinch and zoom things. So think tilt brushes. New, you know, some point update. That honestly had a profound effect on my brain when I spent at least thirty minutes. I don't know if we spoke about this about on Not the last yet. podcast. Okay, okay. well we were discussing this amongst all of us where we were actually just sitting there and like I was playing with the tilt like I was painting something in tilt brush and recording video in there um, and I was just playing with the scaling all the time I literally by the 20 or 30 minutes through I felt there's a certain point where like I was trying to get an angle on the on, on the painting itself where I just couldn't figure it out but like I just let go and like I my brain just totally just sucked it in and and I felt, comp- I don't want to say presence, but uh, right. I literally, I like there's a certain point of like, I let go and I could feel just like, oh, I, I'm in this and I, I completely understand how the space and how I'm actually I'm you know, manipulating things, the scale around me. And that past that point, like, it was such second nature to the point that when I took it off, like, I well, would closed my eyes and I was just seeing the same brushes and streaks
1: kind of going mm-hmm.
0: within the, the Tetris, t- Tetris effect that people kind of talk about. Um, and I think you get that so significantly whenever you are manipulating mm-hmm. a not even a so- solid geomet- geometrical shape, but if it's a fail- full-on painting like a brush. What is a Tetris effect? So the Tetris, Tetris effect is if you play Tetris for a long time, when you close your eyes you it's, see Tetris um... blocks going down. <laughs> um, I think that's mo- more like visual uh, contrast based, right? Like cause Tetris blocks are very uh, highly colored and then the background is black. So you're looking at that you know, high contrast uh, image and video then you will start to develop mm-hmm. that. Plus it's a falling down motion so that those neural, um, you know th- those parts of your neurons in your V1 are now act- overactivated rather than the ones that are going up or to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just that's the after effects. Nice. So yeah, th- there's some pretty interesting profound effects in your brain when you are manipulating something with your hands. And that that and period. Like your hands are so important for developing a mental model of something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and understanding scale and, and space will help you develop that mental mod- that cognitive map of where you are.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You will that the memories that you mm-hmm. develop from that
3: are, are just one shout to the listeners. If any of you knows application or a navigation solution that is not disturbing your Feeling of a distance, you know, like your uh, feeling of orientation. Then just uh, give us a shout. I would like to see
1: such an application. Yeah, I mean,
3: we've seen a, We've seen a couple, right? Teleportation will break
1: it. Sure, and the sh- typical ones. But the thing is, like, if you're a you know young developer in terms of you know you had some very awesome background, you kind of are a teacher. Maybe you have made ads, and now you want to trigger, you know, with VRs or awesomeness, and you're like, there. Okay, what should I do? Should I learn Unity? And I think. My, yeah, 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 we're in a similar situation, Alex. Right, where you were, like, okay, how how do, how do I do it? Like, you know, in Android, you have established Windows and stuff. Windows, you have obviously Windows, you can move around, but how do you do it in VR, right? So, had your this? Okay, how do I actually going to put it in VR? There, well, yeah, no, I have
2: this actually been one of the biggest questions that I've been trying to work out is like dealing with interaction models. And you know, my background again was uh, basic visual and specifically filmmaking, and you know, this is a um, I mean, storyboards are the way you do you work work here. And it's it's not just that you're sort of figuring out a visual pattern for how you're going to direct the audience's attention and what they're going to be looking at moment to moment, but you're also able to break out a budget and schedule and all the resource you need to deliver on that. And you can create this sort of blueprint in a very, very fast, very, very cheap, very, very iterative way. So as the creative team and the production team are essentially going back and forth Mm -hmm. on, you know, vision versus reality and looking for the sweet spot that everybody's happy with, storyboards give you a really good way of, you know, continuously updating, you know, this this point of agreement that they're trying to reach until you get something everyone's happy with. And, you know, as a producer, I would be extraordinarily uneasy um, translation, totally terrified, (laughs) of going into a production without a decent set of boards. Because at this point, you're just flying blind. And that just seemed to me to be like, you know, basic responsibility. And one of the problems that, people from film backgrounds have recognize when they get into VR is that these tools just don't work. <laughs> you know, that the, the idea of having a user who's outside of the environment looking at it through a fixed window, that's just gone. Yeah. Uh, so much of it gets inverted. And so so much of the basic, you know, approach and the mechanisms that work in film just simply don't work in VR. And it's not just that creatively things that work in film don't work in VR. From a production perspective, things don't work. And You know, I was very interested. I I knew I knew that you weren't going to get a literal translation of storyboards, but I I wanted to find what the equivalent thing was going to be that would allow a creative team to, you know, simultaneously work out a creative vision as well as you know get all the practical Mm -hmm. guys to realize that nailed down and to get onto the same page before they start to spend a lot of
1: money. And did you find anything?
2: So what I found um, was actually developed by a a friend of mine, Omar Shapiro. Um, He came up with a technique which he calls design without a headset, and his basic recognition was that the core sense for virtual reality is proprioception. You know, we talk a lot about how it's important to get the different sort of streams synchronized. You want your visual and the the haptic and the audio to all sort of work together because if they do, you know, your brain will respond as though this is a real world Mm -hmm. and it will allow you to feel sense of immersion. That line of thinking is good, but it also tends to treat all these senses as more or less equal. Like, like they've basically got equal value in the archivism just to get them all to work together. Omer's insight was that that's not actually the case. Um, that one of them is, uh, putting George Orwell's say, more equal than others, and that's proprioception.
1: <laughs> more equal than others. Um,
2: and if you think about it, what the main value of VR is a sense of physical presence in environment. This makes perfect sense. It's your body's sense of itself mm-hmm. that is actually the most important thing for this particular medium. Okay, so here I have a question. We already
3: discussed hands. Right. How important are other parts of your body, like legs
2: or your feet? I think they are important, but I'm coming from a totally unscientific background. I think they are as important, but I don't think they're nearly as important. Um, okay. I think there's a... Is it? There's, there's a homunculus. 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 Right. homunculus. It, it illustrates the... <laughs> Portion of our brains, in terms of the number of synapses, are devoted to versus the motor hormones. cortex,
1: yes, and the hands are dominated. The hands are enormous. The eyes are the enormous. The lips, the lips eyes, are enormous. Hands, yeah. I mean, basically, you know, we, we talk shit, we move shit around. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just
2: that's what we do. We just we we, we pick stuff up and we move it around. We um, oh, right. talking about
0: the motor cortex? Yep. Uh, yeah, and there's also a great amount for your genitals and things. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, which is uh, funny uh, because uh, it's actually right next to your feet. Which is why we got foot fetish. There goes a so the the theory. That's so so a theory. Yes, it's not scientifically proven. It's
2: a good amount of cross neural yeah. connections. <laughs> goes but the it's, sharp, sharp. It's, it's exciting stuff. Yeah. So. But no, I, th- I think the hands are particularly important in how you interact with the environment and how we essentially come to understand the environment through touch and through, mm-hmm. you know, through hands manipulation, how we manipulate the environment. So anyway, okay. over. To so
3: what you just did was move your fingers. Right. So how important is um, the fingers position and finger tracking versus just your hand
2: position and being able to click around on your controller in specific positions? I think it's very important. Um, I don't think we're at a stage yet where we can, we can fully capitalize on it. I uh-huh. think The fully tracked hand control, like the full, like you know, basic stuff like the um, Leap Motion. Uh-huh. I mean, my suspicion is that that's that's where we're going. Uh-huh. It's not where I am right now. I know there are people who say, "Oh, no, you'll always have tracked hand controllers." I'm not sure that's the case. I mean, our default mode is you know direct you know direct manipulation of the environment with our hands. We love tools. We are always building tools. So I uh-huh. think there will be a role for you know, hand controls of some kind or another. It's okay. increasingly specialized, increasingly tailored to specific apps, but I, my suspicion is that the, what will become the default VR system will essentially depend on direct tracking of hand, you know, lead motion mm-hmm. style, and will then allow us to incorporate controllers mm-hmm. on a sort of per-application basis,
1: yeah. you know, as needed. Now, um, you're working on this project since how long of yours? Um, I mean, the seed of the
2: idea was planted longer ago than I can remember. Um, I would say that the idea started to percolate maybe about five years ago. And you know, I've been working on it in earnest for about two years. Mm-hmm. And it was about a year ago, actually it was at Oculus Connect two, mm-hmm. um, that I realized that it couldn't actually be a cinematic experience. It had to be an interactive experience. And you know, that's
1: what got me onto the sort of path of like, well, okay, you gotta learn game engines, you gotta design learn design for you know physical interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and are you searching for people who could help you develop, or maybe investors or maybe partners? All of the above. All of the <laughs> above. So yes. if you're triggered by the <laughs> awesome idea... Yes. Positively triggered. Positively triggered. And uh, by the awesome... You're inspired. Os- inspired you're inspired. Oh, inspired. <laughs> if your mind is blown as mine was a few days ago, uh, we'll obviously post contact uh, how, information how to how you. How can
2: people find you?
1: Um,
2: you find me, uh, find me online, uh, Ortelian.com is the, uh, the website. Um, Do you have Twitter? I'm, I am also on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Alex QGB. He's very popular on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> he talks to cool people like Timony e West. <laughs> she she out. <laughs> She's <laughs> awesome. But yeah, no, I'm on Twitter as well. That's actually probably the best place to find me. Alex QGB. Cool. Well, thank you, Alex. This has been an awesome
0: discussion. About- thank you for having me. What and how? What we're doing with our hands? What are we doing with our feet? And what are we doing with the with our maps? And what are we doing with uh, selfies right now? And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining in for another Research VR episode. Join us next time for another informative podcast. Take care.
3: Goodbye. Goodbye.